Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Chapter 1, verse 29. John 1, verse 29. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who was preferred before me, for he was before me. I do not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him? This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Father, we once again thank you that we can gather together just as your children, Lord. And we can come into a place without fear of reprisal. And we can just preach your word, sing songs to you, and enjoy one another's company. I pray that you would bless every part of this day. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. It was a hot New Mexico morning. Maria Rubio was making burritos for her husband's lunch. The husband, Eduardo, was still in bed. Miss Rubio was working with her tortillas, rolling them around with the ingredients, and she rolled two of the tortillas into burritos, and she was preparing to roll the third when she looked down at at the tortilla. She gasped and spoke aloud. It is Jesus Christ, she said. She was referring to a pattern on the tortilla made by a series of skillet burns. She was convinced that the skillet burns formed a picture of Christ. And so she determined that this was a miracle. She ran to her daughter, Rosie. Rosie looked at the tortilla and said, It is Jesus. Miss Rubio took the tortilla to her sister, Margarita Porras. Miss Porras said, I think it's Jesus also. She then took the tortilla to the bedroom. The husband examined the tortilla and said, It's Jesus all right. By now the group knew they would have to do something. Not knowing what else to do, they decided to have the tortilla blessed by the Catholic Church. I'm not making this up. Carrying the tortilla very carefully, walked to Our Lady of Guadalupe Church across the street from the Rubio's home. When they got to the church, they found that the priest was not there. So still guarding the tortilla, they got into the Rubio's 1968 Chevrolet and drove 17 miles to the city of Dexter. There at the church of the Immaculate Reception was the Reverend Joel Finnegan. Mr. Rubio explained about the image of Jesus appearing in the tortilla. Finnegan examined it and then announced, I think it's just a coincidence, he said. It is not a coincidence, Miss Rubio said. 
I've been rolling burritos for 21 years, and this is the first time the face of Jesus has ever appeared in a tortilla. So reluctantly, Finnegan blessed the tortilla. He's probably thinking, this church is driving me crazy. <laughs> However, he warned Miss Rubio that if she tried to save it, it would undoubtedly get moldy, even if she kept it in the refrigerator. But Miss Rubio had different plans for the tortilla. She drove back to her home and placed it in a plastic frame and covered it with glass. Beneath the tortilla, she placed a, a mass of cotton, giving the appearance that Jesus was floating on a cloud. She also put a small shrine to, to the tortilla, placing it on a table and erecting a makeshift chapel around it. This is a miracle, she announced to her friends. This was sent to change my life. So she resigned her job as a maid and said that she would be tending to the tortilla full time. Now people began to come to Miss Rubio's front door. She would let them in and take them to her shrine. According to witnesses, many of the visitors dropped to their knees as soon as they saw the tortilla. Some prayed aloud. Many cried with tears streaming down their cheeks. Local newspapers also heard about the tortilla and sent reporters to take a look. More and more people came to the Rubio house, and many became convinced that it was indeed the face of Christ. But not everybody was as impressed as others. For example, it must be mentioned in fairness that reporter Ken Watson of the Albuquerque Journal said, It looks more like former heavyweight boxing champion Leon Spinks to me. <laughs> Crazy, huh? But let me ask us all a question this morning. Have you seen Jesus? Because until you see Jesus for who he truly is, the Lamb of God, you've never really seen Jesus at all. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. We're picking up in verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he said, that, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Imagine the scene. John sees Jesus walking towards him and announces, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in the Jewish mind, when they heard the phrase Lamb of God, they would immediately associate that with sacrifice. You see, they sacrificed lambs all the time under the Old Testament covenant. And so there would be a recognition in their mind that John sees this man as a sacrifice. The difference is, in the Old Testament sacrifice, the sacrifice of the lambs was given only to cover sins, but they can never completely take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifice could only atone for sin for one year and the next time pushing it back year after year. Until a final sacrifice would one day come and end the Old Covenant and usher Israel into a new covenant. In this covenant, the law of God would not be written on tablets of stone, but on the fleshly tablets of the human heart. And so John is saying this sacrifice is vastly superior to the Old Covenant because this sacrifice just doesn't cover sin. It actually takes them permanently away. But also, when you said the Lamb of God to the Jew, that involves something that was cherished in all three major parts of their Old Testament. 
For it speaks of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, and the law and the prophets. A foreshadowing of the Lamb of God was clearly seen when Abraham took Isaac up the hill to sacrifice him, and he lay upon his only begotten son the wood of the sacrifice. And Isaac said, Behold, Father, the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb? To which Abraham replied, God will provide for himself a lamb. Son, I don't know where the lamb is going to come from, but there has to be a substitute for you. Abraham raised his arm, knife in hand, but then God told him to stop. It says he lifted his eyes and behold, a ram was caught in the thicket. God did indeed provide the sacrifice. In Isaiah 9, 6 we read this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What was on the shoulder of the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace? Well, ultimately, it would be the government of all things. But before that, he had something else laid upon his shoulder. What was it? It was the cross. That's why he has the right to rule over me. That's why he has the right to reign over you. He alone died for our sins. Isaac carried on his shoulder the wood upon which he would be laid, just as Jesus carried the wooden cross on his shoulder upon which he would be nailed. Now the second thing we see is the mosaic part. Now under Moses, the Lamb of God dies and his blood is placed on the doorway of the house so that the angel of death would pass over. Here is the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb of Moses. You see, during the Passover, the blood had to be applied over the doorpost to be saved from the judgment. The thing to keep in mind is, it wasn't the size of the house or the righteousness of the people inside the house that mattered. The only issue was, was the blood applied to the house. But the shed blood was not enough in itself to save the families. The children of Israel had to apply the blood to the doorpost of their home. Revelations 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, says Jesus. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What does that say to us? As the blood needed to be applied to the doorpost individually, so each man must open the door to his heart personally. And lastly, in the prophets, Isaiah said, Each of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was led like a lamb, dumb to the shearers. So when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, that statement evoked everything that was treasured in Jewish law, Jewish prophecies, and Jewish history. So to recap all that, as Abraham climbed Mount Moriah to offer his son as a sacrifice in obedience to God's command, Isaac once again said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the lamb? That is the question that rings throughout the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? 
Here in the New Testament, we hear John the Baptist answer as he points to Jesus and announces, Behold the Lamb of God. Now in Revelations 5, we hear 10,000 angels join in declaring, Worthy is the Lamb. We could simplify it this way. Where is the Lamb is the cry of the Old Testament. Behold the Lamb is the hope of the New Testament. And worthy is the Lamb is the summation of all the scripture. The message of the Lamb of God grows wider and becomes greater as you travel through scripture. In Genesis, as Abel brought a lamb for sacrifice, we see a lamb offered for an individual. In Exodus, as each household sacrificed a lamb during Passover, we see a lamb offered for a family. In Leviticus, when the people of Israel were instructed to offer a lamb, we see a lamb offered for a nation. And here in John, as he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, we see a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We see a lamb who would be offered for the entire world. Now God laid out how this had to be done in Exodus 12.3. It says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now please notice in what I read. In verse 3 it was a lamb. In verse 4 it was the lamb. But in verse 5, it was your lamb. Once again, we see progressive revelation. Yes, Jesus is a lamb, but he's more than just a lamb. He's not one of the great teachers or great masters. No, he is the lamb. Yet he's more than that. For him to be your savior, he must become your lamb. But the passage in Exodus made it very clear that it had to be an unblemished lamb without any defect whatsoever. Did Jesus, the Lamb of God, meet this qualification? In desperation, Judas prayed, I have or I've said I betrayed innocent blood. He's done nothing wrong, said the thief crucified next to Christ. Truly this must be the Son of God, said the Roman centurion. I find no fault in him, said Pontius Pilate as he washed his hands. Jesus stands alone in history, unmatched in every category of all that is good. German novelist Johann Paul Richter said of Jesus, He is the purest among the mighty, the mightiest among the pure, a man who lifted with his pierced hands empires off of their hinges and turned the stream of centuries out of his channel and still governs the ages. Jesus was indeed the lamb without blemish, but he was also the lion of Judah. Only Jesus can be both lion and lamb. Now the lamb speaks of simplicity, meekness, white fleece, innocence, purity, helplessness, and submission to sacrifice. While the lion evokes images of strength, size, golden mane, majesty, courage, and untamed power. How paradoxical that both images speak of Christ. And yet neither is a perfect image. 
Each symbolizes different characteristics of the same infinite person. I've given you the remedy, but we need to touch on why there was ever a need for a lamb in the first place. In a word, sin. That's a very unpopular word today, even in some churches. I read this week, for some time, educators have faced accusations of dumbing down exams in order to compensate for increasingly poor student performances. The Professional Association of Teachers in Great Britain, however, recently proposed another solution. They have actually proposed banning the word fail or failure from the classrooms and replacing it with the phrase deferred success. A spokesman for the group said, eliminating negative language would help avoid the lasting educational problems associated with the labeling of pupils. So I guess that means if little Nigel can't understand math, don't tell him he's got a problem. That may hurt his feelings. Now that's bad enough, but applying this type of thinking theology would lead us to eliminate the word sin. Instead, we might speak of deferred obedience or even delayed righteousness. But there is a fatal flaw in the semantics of all of that, with far-reaching consequences further even than the unhappy students or poor test scores. You see, eliminating sin also eliminates the need for a Savior. And that's what Jesus came to do. From the very beginning, this was God's plan. He was going to send His Son to save us from our sins. That's because, in case you haven't noticed, we have a sin problem. And when I say sin problem, I'm talking about the entire human race, and I'm talking about every person in this room, including yours truly. If you have ever felt like you were at war with yourself, if you ever felt like you were alienated from others, if you ever felt like you were separated from God, I want you to know that you're not imagining things. It's true. This is the human condition. We are alienated and we are separated. We are broken and we are fallen. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to look around. You see it on a global scale. You read it in the headlines. You see it locally in the lives of people who are close to you. And then there are many who even see it on a personal level. Something isn't right. We are not right. We are not as we could be. We are not as we should be. Once again, Isaiah said it well. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. All I know is before Christ saved me, I was a foul and vile human being. Only God knows the damage I could have done had he not had mercy on me. I know who I was. The news program 60 Minutes once aired a story about Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the chief architects of the Nazi Holocaust. In that program, Mike Wallace interviewed a Holocaust survivor, a Jewish man named Yehiel Denor. Wallace showed a clip from the Nuremberg trials in which Denor testified against Eichmann. As Denor walked into the courtroom past the place where Eichmann was seated, the Jewish man turned and eyed the Nazi butcher, 
then suddenly began to sob uncontrollably. Moments later, he collapsed to the floor. Was Denor overcome by hatred, fear, horrible memories? No, it was none of these. As Denor later explained to Wallace, he was suddenly seized by the realization that Eichmann was not an inhuman monster, but just a total ordinary man. I was afraid for myself, said Denor. I saw that I too am capable of what this man did. I am no different than Adolf Eichmann. Mike Wallace's summation of Denor's terrible discovery is true of you and me as well. A part of Eichmann can reside in each one of us. And to be people of integrity, it is terribly important that we understand this. We are not basically good. Our hearts are capable of enormous sin and evil. And paradoxically, the closer we draw to the light, the more clearly we see our filthy state. But thank God he has not left us in our filth. Sin is a reality, but it does not have to be the end of the story. We can have redemption from sin in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth to take away the sin of the world, your sin and my sin. This is why John the Baptist could say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We are born in a fallen state, a state of depravity. But God in his love placed all of our sin upon Christ where he then punished that sin. Not upon us by consigning us to hell, but upon his son on the cross. Verse 32, please. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remaining upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. You have no idea how difficult it was for me to space out the sermons so we could be in this text on the day we baptize at the picnic. <laughs> Not really. It just happened to work out like that. I was like being the hero of all my illustrations. <laughs> of course, if it keeps raining, we're all going to get baptized. Uh, just like Episcopalians, but... Now Luke gives us a little more info on this event. This is Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. I love that. God is well pleased with his Son. And by extension, God is well pleased with his Son's sacrifice to save people like you and I. Jesus says, I am the exact representation of the Father. I think sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking, okay, the Father up in heaven, he's always just a little bit upset. But you know, somebody has to be like that or the place goes crazy. But Jesus is kind of like a softy who appeases the Father. Like, I know they blew it again, but can we just give them one more chance? And then the Father, against his better judgment, grudgingly agrees and doesn't wipe us out. 
As I said before, that's more like the God Father than Father God. So that's faulty thinking. It says God is pleased with His Son. And if you are a Christian, He is pleased with you as well this morning. He may not always be pleased with our behavior, but He is always pleased with us. Why? The Bible says we are accepted in the Beloved. And Jesus is the Beloved One. So how did John the Baptist know for sure Jesus was the Son of God? The Father made it clear to John just who Jesus is by sending his spirit like a dove to light on him. This is also a beautiful picture of the Trinity. Not only that, it is a a proof text against those who are known as Jesus only, which is a sect that deny the teaching of the Trinity. But in this text, it is made abundantly clear. Jesus is being baptized, the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form, and the Father speaks from heaven. So there you have the completed Godhead of the Trinity, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and Father God. This also calls to mind in Genesis, I think, where the great flood, where the dove would not sit down on anything dead from that old world, but it rested upon the hands of Noah, as the Spirit of God now rested upon God's only Son. But what does John's baptism have to do with Jesus as the Lamb of God? Now, it is generally agreed by scholars of all denominations that in the New Testament, baptism was by immersion. It pictured death, burial, and resurrection. So when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, it would be through death, burial, and resurrection that the Lamb of God would fulfill all righteousness. Jesus identified himself with the sins of men. Because in the Jordan where John was baptizing, it was symbolically saturated with the sins that had been confessed in it. And so when Jesus stepped into that water, he became, as it were, identified with the human race, though he himself was still sinless. In verse 34, John testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. Now we can read quickly over those words and miss the importance of them. We must realize this morning the Jews have been waiting for centuries for the Messiah to show up. And now John says, I have identified Jesus as being the man you have been waiting on. As we finish up this morning, Fred Melday, author of the book Messiah in Both Testaments, has pointed out that as few as five points of identification can single out any individual from all the billions of human beings on this planet. He writes, If someone anywhere in the world were to write on an envelope your name, street address, city, state, and nation of residence, that envelope would get to you based on those five points of identification. If the envelope said USA, it would single your location out for more than 200 nations on the planet. If it listed your state, it would single you out from the among 50 states in the United States. The city would further narrow it down to a given locality. The address and street would narrow it down to a single house, and the name would identify the person in that house to whom it is addressed. That's pretty impressive. Go post office. But think about this. The scripture identifies Jesus as Messiah not by five points of identification, or a dozen, or a hundred, but by 456 specific points of identification and 333 specific Old Testament text. Now, according to the Hebrew requirement that a prophecy must have 100% proof of accuracy, 
The true Messiah of Israel must fulfill them all, or else he was not the Messiah. So the question that either vindicates Jesus or makes him culpable for the world's greatest hoax is this. Did he fit and fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies? Yes, he did. Professor of Mathematics Peter Stoner gave 600 students a math probability that would determine the odds for one person fulfilling just eight specific prophecies. Now keep in mind, this is just eight prophecies. Christ fulfilled over 300. First, the students calculated the odds of one person fulfilling all the conditions of one specific prophecy, such as being betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Then the students did their best to estimate the odds for the all eight prophecies being combined. The students calculated that the odds against one person fulfilling all eight prophecies are an astronomical 1 to 10 to the 21st power. If you wrote that out, that would be 1 with 21 zeros after it. To illustrate that number, Stoner gave the following example. First blanket the entire earth landmass with silver dollars 120 feet high. Now think about that for a second. 120 feet high across the whole earth. Secondly, specifically mark one of those dollars and randomly bury it somewhere upon the earth. Third, ask a person to travel the earth and select the marked dollar first time while blindfolded from the trillions of other dollars. And that would be the same as fulfilling just eight prophecies. Remember, Christ fulfilled over 300. All that to say, if a person is honestly looking at the evidence, there is absolutely no doubt that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you don't know him, please come and see me today. Father, you are the Lamb of God.